go out on the journey of awakening, go out on the journey of enlightenment. And they sort of map out, you know, getting a glimpse of it, getting it more stably, getting it more thoroughly, getting more deeply, getting it to the point where it all vanishes, there's nothing at all, but then come back to normal life and just be normal. So mm. <laughs> the end of Zen is like no more Zen. Mm. No more awakening, no more enlightenment, just, just leading your life in the most ordinary down-to-earth way. What does it take to do the impossible? What does, what does it take to level up your game like never before? What does it take for individuals, organizations, for even institutions to achieve paradigm shifting? Nothing is ever the same again, breakthroughs. Our mission is to decode the neurobiology of flow and cognitive peak performance. Access the minds of maverick scientists, groundbreaking innovators, and world-leading experts to understand what it takes to achieve ultimate human performance. So you can feel your best, perform your best, and accomplish your boldest goals. I'm your host, Rian Doris, and together with best-selling author Stephen Kotler, I present to you Flow Research Collective Radio. Henry Shukman, welcome to Flow Research Collective Radio. Really great to have you here. Hey, thanks. Thanks for having me. It's a delight and honor to be on. Yeah, absolutely. I'm gonna I'm gonna start with a breakdown of your bio. So Henry teaches meditation, mindfulness, and awakening practices to a wide range of students from all trans traditions and walks of life. You are a Zen master in the Sanbo Zen lineage and the spiritual director at mountain cloud zen center and you've got an ma from cambridge and an m lit from saint andrews with several award winning books that you've written on poetry and fiction which we'll be talking about today and your essays have been published in the new york times outside and tricycle with your poems having also appeared in the new republic the guardian Sunday Times, London Review of Books, and uh, I believe you have one upcoming in the New Yorker as well. You also taught poetry for several years at the Institute of American Indian Arts and at Oxford Brookes University. And you've taught meditation at Google, Harvard Business School, UBS, Esalen Institute, and many other venues. And we're almost there. It's a great bio. The final piece is that you have written about your own journey in a new book that we're going to talk about as well today, which is your memoir called One Blade of Grass, Finding the Old Road of the Heart, a Zen memoir. And you also created a new meditation program, Original Love, which aims to provide a broad, inclusive path of growth through meditation, which we will also touch on. To start us off, I'm going to read a quote that I really liked from One Blade of Grass, and I would love to, to hear your thoughts on it. And then maybe to build on this quote, you could tell us about your, is it fair to call it an awakening, whatever we want to call it, peak experience that, uh, that seemed to be very pivotal for you in your, in your younger years. And the quote from One Blade of Grass is, I'd learned what the word happy meant. It meant there was no weight in your belly, and if you asked yourself how you felt, the answer spontaneously came back good. So I'm curious if you could elaborate that 
uh, upon that and, and feel free to tell the story as well of how you got into this whole world. Yeah, yeah. Hey, thanks. Um, so if I just dive right in there, yeah, I was 19 years old. I'd grown up with very severe eczema and a kind of unhappy uh, home situation in the UK. And I went abroad to work you know, on a gap year when I was 19, 18 and then 19. And um, I, I, I also traveled for a while. This was in South America. And at a certain point near the end of the trip, I found myself completely alone on a beach watching the sun set. And actually, it was just going down, and there was. Um, I just had a. I had a moment of something quite extraordinary in terms of my own experiences. So completely unlike anything I'd felt before, where um, it really felt like uh, the world as I knew it and myself as I knew myself both sort of disappeared and and were kind of. It was as if I'd sort of seen through them to a, a single fabric. It felt something like that, of which I was inextricably a part and a part, and which seemed to be what all things were kind of were, you know. And it was, it was utterly beautiful and utterly. Um, it resolved. It felt like it resolved everything, you know. It felt like I'd, I'd seen, kind of the truth is what it felt like, and I, I actually, had not been a person who was seeking anything like that. I would never have call myself a seeker back in those days I was just a you know as a pretty rational uh you know sort of empiricist kind of positivist sort of a guy I'd grown up in Oxford uh when my parents were both professors in a very very kind of uh you know academically minded household and I bought into that completely I was interested in you know what could be known really and, and studied and, and evidenced and that sort of thing. And not at all in, you know, spirituality, but this, this, this moment just happened and I couldn't, I couldn't deny it. I couldn't deny the sense of truth that it brought and um, nor the extraordinary happiness that, that came from it, that um, was just a, uh, really unlike anything I'd known before, just a total, it seemed like a sort of un, unimpeachable happiness, a happiness that could not be touched or damaged in any way or distorted in any way, because it was, it was sort of just what was ultimately true. It's kind of what it felt like. So, you know, it, it, was, a, it was an extraordinary liberative experience. It was very... Um, it was very, uh, it was, it was beyond anything. I mean, I had, I'd had moments of great happiness before and fulfillment. And, you know, I found a lot of that in, in the teenage writing I'd done, but this was of a different order entirely. So two, two follow-up questions to that. One is to what degree has it persisted? Did it evaporate completely and then take a decade to, to scramble back to it? Has it pretty much stuck around all the way till now? Or has it changed? And second question is, upon reflection, do you have a sense of what may have triggered it? <laughs> yeah, thanks. Um, for the first question, um, the answer is not at all. <laughs> you know, it, it hung around for a few weeks in a most blissful way. You know, it's like I was just kind of empty and filled with a sense of love, really, love for everything. You know, and um, but then I went home 
you know, as I said, I've been abroad and, and kind of as soon as I got home, all the habit patterns, all the thought patterns and feeling patterns of my childhood just kind of kind of came back with greater force than ever. And and I I had a real breakdown, actually, and I was really unhappy for several years, um, kind of clawing my way through life sort of thing. Uh, just stumbling, you know, from uh, duty to duty, as it as it felt like, you know, just barely managing to hold on. And then I I, I got I got lucky in that I found my way to meditation early on, and that started to help me immediately. And yeah, it then actually I got I got kind of better enough that I could start thinking about that extraordinary moment. What did it What did it mean? And how could I get back there? And then that began, you know, kind of a long search. And it took actually years of training uh, in different traditions, but especially in the Zen tradition, which really knows about that kind of reality glimpsed in a moment like that. It took decades, actually, like probably kind of two decades to get finally have sort of really, I'd say in a sense, a sort of deeper kind of shift that has made that sense of a, a, a marvelous spaciousness and kind of hollowness in a beautiful way available. Not, not, I mean, it's not, I wouldn't claim to always be aware of it, but I can, I think I can say that anytime I remember to sort of just touch in with it, it's there. It's such a great, I mean, it's such an asset really to, have access to, in a way, I could kind of maybe call it a sort of dimension that's so free, so uh, empty in the old Buddhist term, because it's really, in a sense, nothing there. But somehow to taste it, to remember it, to feel it, is is always always brings a sense of extraordinary well-being and kind of a love, actually, and a kind of joy and and um often you know compassion as well comes with it and it took ages to make it more to make it more accessible stably accessible and then i could say that at the time um i was completely alone on this beach and there was something just magical about recognizing that i could not see another human being anywhere nearby and i mean anywhere at all you know i just they weren't in my field of vision I was all alone and it suddenly gave me this sort of permission. It's what it felt like to sort of maybe put down some kind of part of my mind that would normally be primed for interacting. I just, I just dropped it. It hit me then as an immense relief to be all alone. It was, it was just the world and me. And I was also quite happy because I'd, Although I was young, I'd finished the first draft of what became my first book. And, you know, I had a sense of sort of, you know, accomplishment that having finished that, that was also, I guess, a relief. And so I was, I was quite, I was in quite a good space, you know, in, internally. I was, I was just primed for, you know, I'd been a, yeah, like you said, you know, I'd been a poet. Actually, I'm not sure I said this, but I've been a poet since young, since I was young, you know, teen, early teens. I mean, meaning that I just 
used poetry and I've devoured poetry and wrote it and kind of used it to sort of interact with the world a little more intimately is how it felt. And, and so I was in some way I might, might claim to have habituated myself to kind of studying, you know, my limited way, kind of studying my perceptions, you know, studying perception itself. And I was doing that at the time. I was really looking at the light on the water, you know, on the ocean there. And, and just, I just got fascinated by it. And I suddenly realized that, you know, I didn't really know what I was looking at or what the process of seeing really was. Was it all generated in the mind? Was there actually stuff out there? And if there was stuff out there, what did it really look like since it was only light, you know, bounced, triggering the optical nerve? What was really there? And as I was, I was just kind of pondering, you know, what is it to really be seeing something? And suddenly just, you know, the act of seeing it as a separate entity, sort of separate consciousness viewing, you know, a separate or distinguishable object out there, that just collapsed. And that was what triggered it, actually. Mm. So one of the topics that we've been interested about myself and, and Stephen, and by the way, I forgot to mention in your bio that I just found out that you and Stephen spoke um, when Stephen was writing his book, West of Jesus, which is a, a fun coincidence. But one of the topics we've been really interested in and that we've been looking at with Dr. Andrew Newberg, uh, who's a um, often thought to be the founder of neurotheology and is a neuroscientist at Jefferson University is enlightenment and flow. And when in flow, one of the things that happens is our sense of self goes offline and quietens down. We get this sort of sense of absorption in the activity and, and selflessness. And one simple way potentially to think about enlightenment in contrast to that is as that characteristic of flow, the, the decreased sense of self, but in a more enduring sense potentially outside of a specific flow state. I'm curious if you feel there is accuracy there. And I'm also really curious about how you conceptualize the concept of enlightenment and whether you think it's even, you know, real, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, I do think that there's a sort of dimensions of our reality, dimensions of our experience that, you know, traditionally get this label of being a, a let's say an enlightened view. I just have no doubt that, that they are real. I, whether there's a perfectly enlightened person who's constantly in a state of full enlightenment or something, I, I have no idea. I, I'm certainly not. And, um, and I, don't, I don't really, in a way, I don't really aspire to be. You know, the, in the Zen tradition, the, the I mean, well, actually, before I go to that, let me just say this. I'm very interested in exactly the same topic. What's the relationship between flow and awakening with a capital A or enlightenment. And the way I'd say it is, is maybe something like this, that obviously they're very closely related to one another. And, it, and I agree, it's all about the sense of self and it going offline. I'd say that in a clear sort of awakening or enlightenment, if I, I usually use the word awakening, actually, it just seems a little less of a reach, you know, but. But if we, if we dare use the word, if I dare use the word enlightenment, I'd say that in any clear ex enlightenment experience, and I'm saying that to distinguish it from enlightenment as an enduring condition or state or trait, 
But in, a, in an experience that we could call an enlightenment experience, in, in Zen, they say that either of two things happen. The first is that you clearly see that what you've taken your sense of self to be and have sort of believed in and identified with and kind of given your allegiance to, it's never really been there the way you thought it had been there. So it's, it's, not, it's not necessarily that the self goes quiet or dormant or offline. You, you see right through it. You see that this sense of me that's so convincing and, and sort of persistent, you know, actually when you, you suddenly just see that it was just a, a mirage, it was just an idea and it, it can just vanish. I mean, when you see that it, it's only ever been a thought, really, it's only ever been a notion, it, you know, it vanishes. Now, you know, of course, in most cases, it comes right back, you know, whether it's a few minutes, hours, days, or occasionally weeks later, it comes back, or maybe even months or years, but it will come back in most cases, you know. So that's one possibility in quote unquote enlightenment. But another possibility is actually that it's not so much about the self, although it may also be, but you also see that the very world you're looking at has also been a kind of mirage. Now, people don't like hearing this, understandably, and, and unless you, you undergo a glimpse like that, you, know, you, you, don't, you don't really need to worry about it, you know? but you can suddenly see that what you had you know, understood to be this sort of solid world in front of you all around you and, and the, you know you're made of actually also is a kind of mirage and and it's it's they say in zen that it's easier to see the first than the second and and then there's a third possibility which is that you see through both at the same time and that's that's the real sort of in zen that's the real sort of deeper enlightenment experience where it's very hard to i think once that's happened where both self and world vanish, it's very, very overwhelming and sort of, it goes very deep into you to, to have that happen. And I think afterwards, it's, it's such a, it's so, so beautiful to, to be alive because you sort of know that everything's kind of coming out of nothing. And, and that is what I think can become the more durable state in Zen is, or that's what Zen training seems to be aiming for is that, is that you know to, to guide us or help us find our own way to just dropping everything, really everything, mm. and then and then we and then it, it really changes us, you know, from the inside out, and that's where the durability comes from. Mm. Yeah, to poke at the durability piece a little bit more, I'm curious about the degree to which you see, you know, a persistent state of selflessness in the zen sense as being on a spectrum versus being a binary you know on off maybe you could speak to that a little bit because often the way enlightenment is talked about in spiritual texts is that you know you're you're not awake and then you're awake i'm curious <laughs> if that's yeah. if that's been yeah. been your experience <laughs> or, or what your thoughts are uh, there yeah i mean i i actually think that um it's a it's a hazardous way to think about it because i think you know, even if that were in some cases true and how it happens, even then, actually, that we're multifaceted creatures and we've got to grow and learn in many ways. It's not, it's not actually, it's hazardous to think that there's, 
you know, just one stop. If I just get this thing, I'm going to be a, a, a you know, a wonderful being thereafter. We, we, know, we know how hazardous, hazardous it can be to think like that when, you know, people who probably gurus, uh, the stories of gurus who, you know, probably were, you know, enlightened in that regard. But there's other dimensions to a human being that they needed to work on as well. And they ended up abusing people and, you know, behaving in basically thoroughly, thoroughly, you know, harmful and unenlightened ways. So I do think it's uh, hazardous to have an ideology of just like, get over this hump and you're done. But on the other hand, and also, I mean, let me add that, I, I mean, if I look at my own biography, like to get to anything like some kind of turning point like that or fulcrum point when life tips from being one way to being another way. I mean, you know, it took, it took such a long time and even then it, it's not perfectly done by any means, you know? So I think that the idea that there could be just a single one-off thing and you're done, God, I mean, maybe, yeah, maybe there have been people for whom that was true, but I, I would imagine it's incredibly rare. So I think it's much wiser to think about a spectrum. And I also think it's wiser to think about it being like, a, like, yeah, it can be kind of on and off, on and off. I'm clearer, I'm less clear. I mean, I used to, you know, for years, I'd, I'd go and meet a teacher once a week and we'd do a koan together, like a Zen, mm. you know, these Zen koans. That was a big part of my training. And, you know, I'd, I, no doubt I'd go kind of a bit sort of grumpy or, or slightly down or frustrated about something in my life, whatever it might be. I'd have this meeting with a teacher, and boom, I'd come out far clearer than I went in. So, you know, and it would be like that sort of clearer, less clear, clearer, less clear for years. So you can and, kind of uh, jump down the spectrum a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I think it's, you know, I don't know. I, I, these days I really think it's, um, I, I just feel it's, as somebody who, you know, put quite a bit of energy into the enlightenment side of things at a certain point in my life, of course, long, long period of my life. These days, I think, actually, it's really important to be more balanced and sort of rounded in approach. And I mean, I've done a lot of therapy over the years as well. And I, I still do from time to time. And I'm, I'm really happy that I do. You know, it's like, I, I just have this sense that, at least for me, and I think many that I meet with, you know, we are multidimensional creatures and we're going to be, yeah, we may get clear in some area of life. And that doesn't mean we won't be, that doesn't mean we'll be clear in all other areas. And it's, you know, we've got, we've got these beautiful complex hearts that, that contain a lot, you know, contain multitudes and, and it's, we'd have to tend them. And it's true that getting this kind of a, you know, awakening, uh, experience, experiences or sort of dropping into that, falling away in that sort of way creates a whole lot more space. But it doesn't mean that we don't have work to do in other ways. A couple of questions are going to come to practice and, and you know, what advice you have for people on that front. Before we go there, though, one of the things I rarely hear meditation teachers talk about, at least in a way that is satisfying to me, is the specific difference in what day-to-day -day life is like, you know, let's say 10 years, 20 years, 30 years into practice when you're further down the spectrum, like you're, you know, articulating versus at the beginning, you know, in what way is it different now when you stub your toe 
or when, you know, someone cuts across you in traffic or when you get really upsetting news. I'm curious if you could speak to the specifics of how your experience has changed with years of, of practice versus yeah, what it yeah. used to be. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, well the, the first thing I can say, the biggest thing for me was um, if there was a single moment, you know, that I can point to the hour and a minute virtually, you know, when the, the when I went through the, the, the you know, the, the biggest shift that I've been through and it knocked out all the kind of anxiety wrapped up in my career ambitions. I've been, you know, since quite young, I'd had quite a bit of, well, ambition, you know, and, and, um, and it caught, you know, I was often sort of anxious about it, sometimes exalted about it, thrilled about it, you know, I get some poetry prize, I'm delighted, and, you know, somebody else gets the prize next year, and I don't like it, <laughs> that kind of thing, and, and fretting about will I publish this thing here or not, you know, how will it sell, and that was knocked out, it was just taken out, and it hasn't really come back. It, occasionally, since I published this recent book, every so often there's been just a little, little remembering kind of what it's like to be fretting about that stuff, and it doesn't get traction. And um, that for me was quite a big, a big transformation actually, because it had been. When you say it doesn't you know, get traction, I'm, I'm curious what that, what that looks like. <laughs> well, I could just, um, uh, I could see, oh, yeah, 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 that old habit of like, when, when's there going to be a, a reprint or something? I don't know what it might be, you know, I, I'm trying to think of a good example, because it's, it's pretty rare. And then, and then realizing right away, you know, this is arising in the midst of a great space. And it's just, it's just, it's just kind of nothing. It's just a little impulse of it's just like watching the sort of a flow of a lava lamp arise and change shape and fall back down again you know it doesn't it doesn't constitute anything sort of uh that i can really identify with you know it, and and instead there's just i remember you know uh, and i touch in again with this basically a kind of boundless spaciousness but even spaciousness isn't quite the right word is because it's 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 so still it's so right here it doesn't have a dimension and i when i say it you know it's it's not something that can be named it's just it's a it's a, zen calls it original nature but that's a that's it's, you know the, the words don't don't get it so that's what it's like is no one way to describe it potentially that the the degree to which you are anchored in the witness is much stronger and as a result you're less susceptible to kind of getting pulled in or identified to the phenomena that is arising whether it's thoughts or feelings or sensations is that is that it's, yeah, it's, it? it's, it's comparable to that being the, the witness the the mindful equanimous witness the the free quiet peaceful witness is a marvelous uh thing to learn to 
to to inhabit to be stable in but this i would say is 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 uh is not the same because it's no witness there's really no witness and that's that's again maybe not a popular thing to say but but there is i mean i regard that witness consciousness as the sort of deep aspiration of mindfulness but we can go further than that where there really isn't even that and and we we just we just can't say what there is and it's it's much freer even than witnessing there's just what's arising no witness that's really i mean zen goes out on a limb here it was some other forms of buddhism do as well but it's you know it it doesn't it doesn't quite stay within the easily um i don't know understandable territory you know where um, that our minds can get around because wrap themselves around because there is there is you know we, we can go beyond what we can understand in practice and uh, i think in a way that's where the real deepest sort of freedom and joy and love um come from mm. beyond understanding i'm curious if you could give an example henry of when of a, of a scenario or a situation in which the, the, the witness experience is distinct from what you're referring to. I, I'm, I'm struggling to wrap my head around what the, what the difference would be experientially between just witnessing phenomena from kind of the seat of awareness to yeah. not even having the witness or the seat of awareness. So, yeah, 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 yeah. No, good. Good question. I mean, it's really about, and it's honestly, really, this is hard stuff to convey, um, except through training <laughs> with, with people find this through, for example, Zen training and koan training. You can get to this place where there just isn't a seat of awareness. There's just what is arising. And there isn't a separatable witness or consciousness or awareness of any kind. I mean, the, the, um, the you know for for whatever it's worth the uh, the texts you know like there's a famous uh, scripture you know called the Heart Sutra it's a sort of a short document from early Buddhism of around a thousand uh, two thousand years ago about and it says in it you know no mind no consciousness like actually to have the sense of because a lot of, a lot of us in the meditation world you know we, there's a lot of emphasis on awareness and consciousness and finding non-dual awareness and awareness that's all pervasive and things, which is great. I, 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 I am totally into that, but it is also possible to somehow see through even that where there really isn't even awareness and there's just what is arising. And people would, you know, make make what they will of that but it is really it's for real it's interesting um yeah 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 and i'm, I'm curious if, is that is that kind of your steady state these days no i want to be totally flexible <laughs> i like i i'm i i roam around in different 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 states you know and i i'm very happy to do that um there's a there's a zen master a famous old guy called Rinzai who said I hope this isn't going too much into the weeds but I'll just 
put it out there. He said, sometimes there's a person and no world. Sometimes there's no person and there is a world. Sometimes there's no person and no person. Sorry, there's no person and no world. And sometimes there's the person and the world. And all four are fine. Mm. So, so, you know, there's this map of Zen called the ox herding pictures and without getting into them, but to sum them up, they say, yeah, go out on the journey of awakening, go out on the journey of enlightenment. And they sort of map out, you know, getting a glimpse of it, getting it more stably, getting it more thoroughly, getting more deeply, getting it to the point where it all vanishes, there's nothing at all, but then come back to normal life and just be normal so the, mm. the end of zen is like no more zen mm. no more awakening no more enlightenment just just leading your life in the most ordinary down-to-earth way mm. and they said and they said it's kind of very hard to get there <laughs> yeah and there's some sort of it's it's sort of the uh simple complex simple journey in a sense yes. and yes. there's usually yes. a difference between the first simple and the second simple even if exactly. they seem very similar so um so i'm curious i'm going to come back to the the psychotherapy piece uh, and the practice piece in a moment but I, before we shift off the experiential topic i'm curious to ask you about how certain categories of experience have changed and one that i'm particularly curious about given our audience is actually related to discipline willpower drive you know work ethic um i'd love to hear how your relationship to motivating and catalyzing action out of yourself has changed over the years as you've moved kind of more into the, the witness and then you know beyond beyond it as well yeah sure okay so you know my, my i don't hold myself up as an example at all but what seemed to happen for me was that um, I got um, I got my ambition blown out of the water, and um, and then what replaced it was a sense of, of of a kind of love. I don't know what else to call it. A sort of loving silence and a loving peace and a and, and it, was, it wasn't. It, I didn't feel like it was anything to do with me. It was just something that I'd sort of found, I'd got to that was already here. I just hadn't really stably inhabited it before or vice versa it inhabited me i don't know but i was kind of connected to it or part of it and i and then i wanted to just do whatever little things i could do to help and and i started doing hospice work you know in, in the best that i could you know i don't know whether i was any good at it or whatever but i used to do it and just hang out with people in their final months and I started going to the prison to teach meditation or, you know, I mean, I say teach, just sort of try to help people do whatever meditation they wanted to do. And I, and then I, I was, um, you know, I was, I was asked by the, you know, my teachers to, to start formally sort of being a Zen teacher. And, and I, I, I did. And, and um, it's kind of, morphed into not just zen now but sort of mindfulness and associated practices basically um including zen insofar as you can distinguish zen from a more general picture and and so you know the the orientation moved for me or the motivation 
really just became less, I suppose, in a sense, it became less about my own projects. And now some people would say, well, I don't want that, you know. Um, but for me, it's, it's been a very happy thing. It's been a very liberating thing. Actually, funny enough, just now, I mean, literally in the last six months or something, I've been, I've been getting more <laughs> interested in once again, sort of, well, not just writing poems, but actually wanting to, I'm thinking about publishing a new book of poems, actually. So I'm sort of, I mean, that is a little bit more like a project for Henry. And so I'm sort of, I'm kind of carefully watching, you know, how much do old habits around that kick in and giving space for that to happen. And, and um, but so far, it's, I feel that the kind of poems I'm writing and wanting to share are intended to help people in their lives and also in their, in their practice, you know, whatever. They've got a sort of, I guess, a kind of contemplative flavor, you know. Pardon the interruption, and thanks for tuning in to Flow Research Collective Radio. If you're listening to this, here's a bold bet I'm willing to make about you. My guess is, even though you're a high performer, you're still only performing at about half of your capacity, maybe even 10%. Now, even if I'm wrong, assuming that you're performing at less than your full potential opens up the possibility for you to improve. And that's good news. When you've already outperformed most of your peers by a long shot, you've got a skill stack that people envy, that's why you earn what you earn, and yet you're just warming up. You know those days when you knock out more in your morning than most do in an entire day? Well, what if you could perform at that level every day, reliably, consistently? What would that unlock for you? Now here at the Flow Research Collective, we study the human nervous system when it's functioning at its absolute best. After training thousands of high performers from Navy SEALs to Fortune 100 executives, here's what we found. You're evolutionary hardwired to perform at your best. All it takes is pressing the right mental buttons and pulling the right biological levers, so to speak. It's about getting your neurobiology to work for you instead of against you. Now, if you want to make operating at a 10 out of 10 level as natural as breathing, just go to getmoreflow.com. We'll show you how to reliably trigger a flow state where you feel limitless and you do your very best work. This won't require any biohacking or nootropics or gadgets or caffeine guzzling. This higher gear is endogenous, which means it's a state that your brain produces on its own. No external stimulus is required. Just go to getmoreflow.com to learn how to get your biology working for you instead of against you so you can make peak performance second nature. All the best. I'm curious, Henry, if you have a poem at the ready that you'd be uh, open to sharing with the audience. No pressure to, but... Yeah, yeah. Let me, let me, I hadn't, Dan, that's, you put me on the spot. Let me see. I'm going to pull one up. Um, take it, take your time. Passenger, passenger. When the last moorings have been released, the line swung loose, the hull has parted from the quay, and you feel the new flow carry you as if it had been waiting just for you all this time. Don't imagine it's you who engineered this current, which although so smooth has the unseen power of a great river. It's like that first time you swam when you were seven or eight and you lifted your toes clean off the bottom of the pool and to your astonishment, the water held you. You hovered like a cloud in the sky your shadow flickering over the blue land beneath. 
So now all you've done is give yourself over against all instincts and found that you're held and that what carries you knows where to take you. And there's no reason not to let it. And you do. And in doing so, you realize you've just found the answer that had always eluded you. Wow, that's, uh, that's gorgeous. That actually um, beautifully answered the question that I asked you as well about discipline and drive. So <laughs> thank you for that. Yeah, that's, that's lovely. Is that in the new, the new book that's coming out, the new poetry book? The book to come. Yeah, the book, it will be. Uh, Amazing. But the book is, the book is really, it's, it's really, it's a cluster of poems right now. <laughs> Feeding my way to the, the ordering and the, you know, what's going to be included and whatnot and so on. So it's a, it's a little ways off still. Mm. Yeah, it looks like it's coming along really nicely based on that one. So <laughs> the, Thanks. yeah, the next question, which relates to this is, um, when you are engaging in creative pursuits like writing that poem for example or writing your recent book one blade of grass or maybe preparing for uh uh you know a meditation program like original love do you find that the quality of mind that has been cultivated through the meditation practice increases your susceptibility or the ease with which you're able to get into a you know, flow state, which I, you know, see as distinct from a, a meditative state or kind of a baseline witness state um, when you're engaging in those, in those pursuits? Is it easier to slide into immersion and absorption within the creative process? I have just no doubt about that. Absolutely. You know, and I actually, I push it way back to, you know, as soon as I started meditating back, you know, my early twenties, it, it started helping my writing because number one, you know, in the stillness of, of sitting or just in the, you know, the daily practice of being still certain time each morning, stuff would just come, you know, I'd, I'd uh, you know, I'd come toward the end of a sit and lo and behold, a phrase just pops into the mind about something that I've been working on and it's a better way to put it. It was a, it's the next step. And I, boom, there it is. It just comes up. And I think for creative people, I know a lot of creative people meditate and have, have talked about this, you know, that there's a, there's a natural ease in sort of plumbing the depths of, of the well that you want your creative uh, impulses to come from and, you know, carrying the, the form that they need to carry and need to be expressed in, you know, there's a, they seem to just come up more naturally by themselves it's like it's like just getting an email you know and um i i don't i have no doubt that that that, that um yeah meditation helps with that and i th i think it's kind of makes sense because you're you know you're, you're settling more deeply into into a sort of um quieter consciousness that's more receptive so you're more open you're more available you're more accessible to whatever wants to come. And, and um, since, uh, I mean, you know, that was true for, you know, a lot of my meditating and creative life until this sort of, rather, I think of it as sort of deeper 
shift that happened where it's just not that out. I'm just sitting every day and there's nothing but silence and it's, but it's marvelous and, and it's full of love. And I didn't, I, I didn't want to write. I wanted to act as just be as helpful as I could. And it's, you know, it's only sort of a, what is it like 12 or 14 years after that, that, you know, I, I started to come around to thinking, well, maybe one of the, acts of helpfulness that i might offer is a book you know and i hope i'm right but it seems like this book one blade of grass kind of the, i've had so many so many people write to me about it. it seems like it has kind of um encouraged people actually who are on a, on a spiritual path so maybe maybe that's another way of helping that i'm i'm finally getting around to you know believing in again kind of thing mm. Mm. Yeah, plumbing the uh, creative well is a very nice way to put it. I did my thesis in my master's in neuroscience on the relationship between flow and meditation. And there's a lot of initial empirical data that shows that there's a correlation between uh, state and trait mindfulness and flow proneness or you know, your disposition to being able to access a flow state, which I mean, makes total basic sense. So yeah, yeah, exactly. So sort of like being in flow without having to be in a challenging or activity, you know, just you can just live in it. Right. As yeah, making a cup of tea, simply making a cup of tea in flow, you're moving through your day in flow, speaking in flow, you know, you can, you could, you could, that's, that's certainly a fruit of meditation. The next question I wanted to ask you about is, is the practice one, the how to, how to make it happen question. So I did a, uh, I did a 10 day silence and meditation retreat about two months ago and found it to be just an incredible experience. Came out of it feeling just amazing uh, in the ways that you're describing and uh, lasted about three days. And then I was back to <laughs> completely back to baseline. I weirdly, my meditation practice was actually worse afterwards. I don't know why that happened, but it was a whole thing. And so, yeah, I'm curious, you know, for the listeners and selfishly for myself, let's say, for example, you've been, you know, sort of trying to meditate for five or so years with apps and bits of 20 minute meditations here and there, but there hasn't been kind of a continual arc of progression or continuation, which I think is the frustration for a lot of people. Um, how do you start to get into a practice that, that kind of builds and compounds and deepens rather than it just feeling like these isolated instances of sort of trying to practice for a few months and then back to square one with a slightly different equivalent version a few months later? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. Um, here's, here's, a, here's a couple of thoughts on that. One is honestly just one interaction with a teacher, you know, might really help. Just one session with a teacher or coach who knows the terrain really well and that might set you up for a couple of years you know and the reason it might do that and maybe you can get this without an interaction with a teacher is becoming more aware of the possibilities of the whole path you know there's there's a there's been you know rightly so much emphasis on mindfulness as essentially a kind of therapeutic and uh, performance enhancing intervention but there's so much more, you know, it, I mean, it's great that it can offer those things and, and it can, 
and you know but it, it, it even that will probably take a little bit of guidance and and certainly some practice but that's just the beginning of a path i mean the the more the clearer we are that there's a there's a there's an incredible journey to be made you know in you know i would honestly say the journey of a lifetime because it's a journey into finding out just totally unexpected things about who and what we are and if you if you recognize that if you know that if you know that you're a you know, like a pilgrim or you're a, you're a, you're a, I mean, I always felt like a sort of ingenue trying to find his way in, in the mountains and suddenly somebody points out a path, a trail and man, you can go up this trail and there is a mountain and it's for real and the view is going to be different from the top, you know, and, and actually, by the way, you're not going to stick around at the top. You've got to come all the way back down to your ordinary life and, and it's going to look different when you do that. And, you know, to, to really know that this is a transformative path, it's much more than just learning some skills that can help us cope and manage. It's much more than that. And sort of the more we, we know that, you know, the more inspiration there is, or maybe to, to, to go further and, and that can, you know, encourage us to, hell, I want to keep going with this. You know, it's, 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 it's it, I believe in, you know, the path as outlined, but I can't do that if I if I haven't even heard what the whole path really is, if you see what I mean. And and um, that's one sort of one thing, you know, guidance that lets you know about the whole path. But secondly, actually, I it's interesting what you're saying about the retreat. I mean, I, I was a sort of diehard believer in retreats, you know, for much of my own training and both as a student and now as a teacher you know it's, it's been a mainstay of what I've done but actually recently I've, I've started seeing tremendous benefits in courses you know we've been offering uh, this original love program has courses there once a week you have a two-hour session you know hundreds of people come and they're doing it in their living room or their kitchen or their bedroom you know and What's great about that is that where you really want the input is right in the middle of your ordinary life. Because, you know, we all know, yeah, you can get, uh, you can go deep and whatever, you can really cast, cast off during a retreat. But how much does it actually help whether, you know, the rubber hits the road, which is in ordinary life? And these days, I, I think, I haven't lost faith in retreats. I do think, you know, they're immensely valuable. But there's this other way of having, like, weekly session with a teacher that actually, you know, can galvanize us right in the midst of ordinary life where we most want to be galvanized and encouraged, if you see what I mean. Mm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. More, more integrated, closer to the ultimate baseline you're trying to shift. Exactly. What is a approximate amount of time or sort of schedule that you've seen work well for people to, to have enough consistent momentum to have the practice stick? Is it, you know, is it an hour a morning to really make yeah, yeah. a meaningful difference? Is it, you know, 20 minutes twice a day? I'm curious what you've seen yeah. generally yeah. work best as a rule of thumb. Like sort of minimum effective dose, really. Um, well, I do think actually the two things you said are, are really good, um, things to aspire to 20 minutes, twice a day was the recipe that TM had, you know, 
Transcendental Meditation, which was an immensely successful attempt to scale meditation back in the 60s. You know, that they, they hit millions of people, I think, in the, in the 60s and 70s. And although, you know, things may have moved on a bit, that, you know, mindfulness has sort of uh, probably made that mantra-based kind of practice seem a little old school or something these days. But it had one thing right on, which was that, uh, it's where I started actually myself as TM. They drilled it into you that like, if you don't do this for 20 minutes, twice a day, don't do it at all. You just have to do that or you won't get any benefit from it. And that's probably rather a hardcore thing to say, but that's that was their line. And um, I actually think they were they were right that there is there is a minimum effective dose and it could be of course it'll vary for for people but i don't know i think i think that was a a really good shot at a at a kind of mean amount for a large section of the population 20 minutes twice a day but actually in you know we in zen we we don't we don't do it like that we want people to get the habit first so we'll say you know somebody's new just five minutes every day and when you've done that for three weeks make it seven minutes every day and then when you've done that for you know a little while bump it up to 10 minutes every day and then see if you can get up to half an hour every morning you know and then you might try to add a 15 minute sit in the evening as well or something like that the the most important thing i think is that it be daily actually it's it's and daily regardless, you know, so we have to, to get the, the habit instilled. We seems like we have to let go of wanting it to, to be a really nice experience. You know, we have to just do it regardless. So sometimes we sit and yeah, our mind's just racing and we can't seem to, can't seem to get any, any, any stillness, any centeredness, any handle on things doesn't actually matter just do it anyway because there's some view that the mere fact of sitting still is sending a signal to the unconscious regardless of what's going on in the conscious mind the unconscious registers oh basically he or she or they they're not doing anything they're sitting still and that is actually more important than what we might judge to be the quality of, of a sit. And that, that's another thing we have to get rid of is our assessing our sits. We have to just throw that out the window, you know, mm. as, we, as we're learning to do it regularly. Yeah. That's, that's, that's really interesting as well about TM. I'm curious if that, given that you got your start there and given the kind of structured nature of it, whether that is actually sometimes a place you recommend people start my experience and this may have been why the my, why my practice got kind of almost negatively impacted by the retreat the zen prompts that were provided felt for me at least just too advanced they were too minimal like i could just it was kind of just nothing basically yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, so i'm yeah. curious if, if, if tm sometimes is actually a good you know, starting point to build a practice and then maybe graduate from Tian into Zen or something else after that? Yeah, I think it could be, but, you know, there's, it's, it's, 
it's got certain you know barriers to it like you know you're going to get given a quote-unquote sacred sound you know that you sit with and uh you know are you okay with <laughs> having a strange mantra we don't need it anymore you know we know from mindfulness research that you don't really need a mantra to get to get the benefits of practice i mean what i what i feel is um we're moving toward new formulations of the wisdom that's been um, encoded in, in these various great Asian traditions of meditation. And, you know, they're all meeting here. People are getting exposure to several of them here in the West. And I think we're going to be seeing, you know, new distillations, new iterations that surely grow out of these great traditions but don't have uh, the sectarianism that they often come with, that don't have, um, you know, whatever, e even in the traditions that, you know, claim to be just exclusively about meditation, there's, there's usually a bit of doctrinal baggage, actually, once you scratch beneath the surface. So, you know, new forms that really don't have that, that are just for us, you know, for there's no, there's no kind of a, institutional structure between us and our own spirituality you know the spirituality i think we all see because we've got it already it's just a matter of what are the instruments to help us uncover it you know to find the intrinsic peace love wonder that you know uh, that we that we do have um already but they're often hidden by our patterns of thought and so on and also i mean very importantly, actually, also our, our, our intrinsic capacity to, to, to sort of handle difficulty, you know, we, and by that, I mean, be open to heartbreak. You know, I don't want a practice that closes our hearts. I want one that opens them even more so that when, you know, when we see suffering, when we ourselves suffer, when, when, people close to us that we love are going through hard times. We, we are right there with them feeling it. You know, that's compassion is, is really feeling with the suffering of others and wanting it to lighten for sure, but not, not from a, a, a place of kind of, I've, I've got free of all that. I'm through all that. I'm above all Excessive that. detachment. Yeah, right. exactly. Exactly. I think if, if we're not, you know, really, I think uh, an open heart is a broken heart. I think broken heartedness, mm. you know, is, is somehow where we must all, all end up. I'm sorry to say, mm. but God, I, I do good believe one. it. An open heart is a broken heart. I like that. Second last question for you, Henry, you, you mentioned psychotherapy and uh, one of my all time favorite books is called Already Free by uh, Bruce Tift. The subtitle is Buddhism meets psychotherapy on the path to liberation. And he basically talks about these two different tracks of development. On one side, he calls it the fruitional view, which would be sort of the meditative approach of kind of, you know, this isn't this is a bit of a crude way to describe it, but you know, dissolving the self or sense of self. And then on the other side, he talks about the developmental approach, which is about sort of healing the self 
and all the mm. you know defense mechanisms or patterns that have accumulated in the self from from childhood and um actually i think it might have been in one of your past interviews you talked about the maybe maybe it wasn't you so correct me if i'm wrong here but um may have been you talked about the idea of the fruitional approach being about being comfortable with the pebble in your shoe and the developmental approach being about taking the pebble out of your shoe um (laughs) so i'm curious how you think about those two approaches and you know you mentioned that you have done psychotherapy so i'm curious how you've balanced those two sides of the coin over the years yes thank you i'm really glad you bring that up It, it wasn't me i like that I like that that's that that analogy very much. I wish I could claim it, but I, I might I might uh, <laughs> I might use it myself. It's very good, so and I, I really like the sound of of that book. Actually, I didn't know it. I I'm gonna I'm gonna order a copy right away. Actually, because that's right where I'm at. Is that we uh, sort of I think picking up really what I was saying earlier. We've we need to acknowledge that you know we grow in different dimensions and. And yeah, there's the expansiveness and this kind of release and the opening up that of, of the meditative path can bring. But there's also this, um, you know, very human heart that needs tending. That it's not to say that the first doesn't include that in some way, but it's not the same to really go into our blocks and our, our dynamics and our you know the the ways that we're caught in eddies of thought and feeling and the and the issues the interpersonal issues we have really going into that and and you know if it means going back to childhood trauma and things and then so be it if it means doing somatic work and releasing trauma from the body great if it means uh, and i did a lot of dream work that was very sort of uh, trauma based actually it was very powerful for me it was very uh, really a critical part of my journey I think and um, among other kinds of therapy and I, I, I really feel that um, we want to be sure or we want to be careful that our spiritual life you know isn't a form of avoidance and it you know I as somebody who's who's been pretty devoted to a spiritual path I I, I still know, I know that it can be. I mean, I, I, but the point is that, how can I put this? I don't, even though I think um, it's so important that we, we grow multidimensionally, you know, including the healing of our psyches that needs to happen, as well as to whatever extent we're drawn to the contemplative and, you know, discuss, part of the great discovery of, you know, our place in the cosmos and stuff and who we really are great but but at the same time doing the psychotherapeutic healing and and uh, releasing of ways that we're blocked and the blind spots we have all of that but the thing is it's it's some people will say well you know you, you know the term spiritual bypassing you, you may have heard you know meaning getting so involved in a spiritual life that you're neglecting things that you should be attending to you know, in other areas of life, it's sort of pretty much like, say, equivalent to workaholism, where, you know, somebody's just meditating so much, but actually, they've got a lot of problems in their relationship with their partner. And somehow the meditation is kind of a way of avoiding dealing with those problems, you know. But the, the thing I want to say is that it doesn't mean the meditation is no good. It doesn't mean the 
you know, even awakening sort of no good, it means that we're multifaceted. It just means that, you know, both are good. Both the psychotherapy is good and the practice toward awakening or whatever it is that our spiritual path is giving us, you know, both are needed, both are good. Yeah, that makes that makes total sense. Definitely resonates. I am um, when I was a one year old, funnily enough, I first learned to walk in an ashram in India. My parents used to go out there to meditate. And um, I felt that I encountered a lot of people early in life who only did one side of it, only did the fruitional and had all sorts of crazy baggage, um, which, uh, yeah, which always just, I don't know, it instilled a sense of the importance of, of tackling things from both sides in, in me as well. So yeah, cool. I like that. Can you mention that too? And um, the final question, Henry, is uh, a question about a question, which we ask a lot of our academic guests. And the question is, if you could immediately have all the research done on any topic, if you could click your fingers and have all the randomized control trials you could ever wish for to answer any question that you have or have had for a long time, what would that question be? Oh God, I would, I, I'm waiting for the science of the really deep enlightenment to be understood when we, when just, there's just nothing left. And yet it's marvelous. I'd, I'd love that to be, I mean, it's going to happen. I think, I think, you know, I think the cognitive research, the neuroscience research, it, it can, can take us some way. And then I think it's going to meet physics at some point, you know, because it seems like, and I know it's a reckless thing to say, but it does seem like when you, when you get into the really deeper experiences that meditation opens up, you know, you're, you're touching on, on something that feels like the creation of the universe. <laughs> I know that's a crazy thing. It sounds like a crazy thing to say, but I really, I feel, I, I feel maybe it's true. You know, maybe it's true because, you know, after it's all pouring into existence right now, you know, this very moment is arising out of nothing right now. That's, that's what I feel. And I, I don't, and I, and it's, you know, you can, you can read sort of, I mean, as so far as I can read, science books for lay people you know physics for lay people quantum mechanics for lay people you know it it seems some some aspects of it's incongruent with what, what mm. physicists say mm. that's the, that's the a good one i like that yeah that's the that's a big one yeah, for me <laughs> yeah no that's great um and uh before we jump off i just want to mention uh, originallove.org which is the new meditation course and then One Blade of Grass, Finding the Old Road of the Heart, a Zen memoir, which is your latest book. Is there anything you'd like to mention on the originallove.org front? Um, we, Rian, how, how soon is this likely to go out? Um, I think actually next week. Yeah. Well, well, that's great timing because we've got a new course starting August the 31st, which funny enough is on it's on, you see, we got in original love, we have sort of different dimensions of practice that we look at. And one of them is flow and samadhi. Mm. And we've got a new course starting August 31st. It's a six week course on flow slash samadhi. In other words, getting into beautiful states of ease and effortlessness, timelessness, maybe even selflessness through meditation and guiding. I guide people to that and talk about it and, and people ask questions. And so it's an experiential course. And, you get two 
meditations a week as well as a weekly two-hour sunday morning session morning if you're in the u.s and um it's it's kind of it's I'm, I'm very proud of this and happy about this meditation program actually because i think it's it's really trying to be well grounded and you know and taking a sort of solid foundation that includes awakening but also therapeutic mindfulness you know uh, opening to support more and and getting into absorption states flow states that are you know akin to awakening but maybe not quite the same thing you know mm. but close you know teaching everything or helping people discover through some guidance whatever can be offered that way but mm. i think it's 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 a it's an exciting program i think Super. No, yeah. Thanks for mentioning that. Originallove.org is the website for everyone. And I can see here, yeah, zone three Samadhi and flow states. There you go. So <laughs> that's great. And uh, thanks so much, Henry. This is amazing. Really, really appreciate you uh, sharing your, your attention and your wisdom with us. Um, yeah, I've been really looking forward to this one for a long time. So, uh, Hey, Rian, thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be on the show. And please say hi to Stephen for me. I will. I definitely will indeed. <laughs> hey, it's Joshua with the production team. Now, if you're listening to this, you probably have a long track record of success. However, you also have a craving you can't ignore. It's the deep desire to do more and to take things to an even higher level than before. And when it comes to your performance, you're by no means inconsistent. However, you may have hit a plateau. The traditional ways of breaking through and gaining new ground just aren't working. If you're starting to wonder if you actually have it in you, to get to where you want to go. Maybe you can feel it. You're in the middle of an important stretch for your career. And the good news is there's a way to get at least 50% more out of what you're currently doing. You can gain the altitude needed to escape reactivity, to stay in the strategic zone and transcend stagnation all without compromising what's truly important to you. That's precisely what we're here to help you do at the Flow Research Collective. We've done it for thousands of top tier performers. Reviews and praise for our tools, our protocols and our ideas have come in from the likes of Elon Musk, Ariana Huffington, and Bill Clinton. So if you'd like to train with us, go to getmoreflow.com. What you'll learn is backed by research from Harvard, DARPA, and Deloitte. These are the same peak performance protocols we teach to Navy SEALs and executives in Google and Facebook's boardrooms. Just go to getmoreflow.com. If what you've heard on Flow Research Collective Radio has been helpful, Please consider doing us a solid and leaving us a review on Apple, Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you are listening to this. Reviews help us connect to a wider audience so we can get these peak performance principles out to more people.